hearts. And so, um, so you may have to reacquaint yourself with people in now your row. So I trust you'll do that and, uh, and uh, you will uh, greet each other uh, after you leave here and as you're on your way to Sunday school classes and grab a cup of coffee, coffee which you don't now have, but coffee which you can get afterwards. So we trust that uh, you will do that. Um, if you're new to us, welcome. Um, we're all a bit new today, but we have an information kiosk out there in the what we call the narthex of the lobby area, so please avail yourself of that. There'll be some folks there that will uh, share with you about the life of our church. Uh, it's helpful for us to get some information, to get to know you, and for you to, to get to know us a bit, so this is a way for all that to happen, so with that information kiosk there, out there in that, uh, in that area uh, as you come in. Fighter verse for this week from Matthew uh, 28. It's a great verse. It'll, it'll sort of prepare us as we think through this week. Uh, so take that, you and your children, and, uh, and uh, if you have children, and together memorize this as a family so you'll be able to, to know what is to come as we come to worship on next Sunday to know what's true. You'll see our Holy Week uh, services this Thursday. We'll gather at 7.15 for what we call Maundy Thursday, which is a, a time where Maundy comes from the Latin mandatum, which means the mandate that Jesus gave to his disciples to love each other. So we come together on that night, share communion together, and, uh, and, and hear uh, what Jesus has to say uh, to us about what was to come in his life, what we know has come in his crucifixion and resurrection. Then next Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, we'll have services at 8.45, 10.45, no Sunday school next week, just uh, an opportunity for our families uh, to gather together, so please note that. Some VBS registration stuff, VBS um, information uh, there. Uh, you'll notice the, the registration for VBS has, uh, has begun, so please um, make sure you register your kids, see the various needs that we have. Uh, Outdoor Life for Men coming on the 30th. Uh, you can take a look and see for the men of the church that particular activity, um, that particular activity as well. Blast graduation, family picnic coming up so take note of that. Also, after the service, uh, as always, we have elders available to pray. Uh, given the distance now between here and where they had previously prayed with you, we're just going to have elders come down and, and be down front. I don't know if they're going to be on that side or that side, but somewhere in those crooked pews, uh, they'll come and, uh, and greet you there. And uh, I think it'll be quiet enough there to pray. If you have a special need and need more quiet, we can find places uh, to pray. But please... Uh, Take note of that, avail yourself of that opportunity to pray. Uh, you'll also see just around the building, uh, tape on the walls and so forth and so on. Just leave it there. I know there's an instinct for a certain gender among us to remove those pieces of tape, I trust. <laughs> Maybe both, I don't know. But just leave them there. We did a punch deal list thing the other day and you know all these little things would be corrected. So just leave them there so we remember uh, the various places that need to be... Uh, need to be fixed up. So anyway, welcome to you. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to that which is the very word of God, that which you have given to us. It's amazing that we have it. May we never take for granted that you, the very God of the universe, the transcendent one, is so imminent that you've come to live among us and you've written to us. You've left this record for us of that which is true that we can consult all the time. So we'll never be confused about 
that is really true. And so I pray that you would help us now to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. I want to read, really, through verse 25. Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 25, please. Hear the word of God. Now when they, and the they there is Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, of the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now, if you've been with us, you know that I've been preaching through First Timothy. I'm taking a break from that during this time because of the significance in the life of the church of this particular Sunday and this particular week. We call it Holy Week. This Sunday, Palm Sunday, it's helpful for us 
to set aside these events really in the life of Jesus and ponder them. Sometimes as I'm preaching through, I can stay with my particular text, other times not. So this year it seemed as I read through 1 Timothy that, that, that it would be better for me just to take a break for this week and walk us through, if you will, the, this particular life, a week in the life of Jesus. We do that often during Advent, which is the incarnation, of course, of Jesus, his, his coming. And now during Holy Week, we consider the purpose for which Christ came. That purpose being to die. To die for the sins of sinners. To die an atoning death. It begins on this particular Sunday, this particular Sunday we call Palm Sunday for the obvious reasons of the palm branches, the palm branches coming and, and being used and waved and all of that in, 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 praise, of, in praise of Jesus. And, and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, a key, perhaps the key city in all of the world, in all of history. It was that place in Jerusalem that Jesus, I'm sorry, that God built a temple for his dwelling place. It's a new Jerusalem that Jesus is preparing a place for all of his followers, a new Jerusalem that will one day come as Jesus returns so that the glory of the Lord may cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that it itself, this new Jerusalem in the midst of the new heavens and the new earth and all of that time in which we'll dwell forever, the very dwelling place of God with his people. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, key place, key place in history, and he comes there, of course, as we mentioned, in order uh, to die. And it's a kind of an odd event, isn't it? Kind of an odd event as, as Jesus comes into this into this place, because because we know that he's been intentional. We can see his intentionality. He says, "Listen, I've got this figured out. I need to ride into Jerusalem, and I need to ride into Jerusalem on this colt, on this donkey." So, so go get one. Now, we don't really know if Jesus made preparation ahead with someone to say that you can go and get your donkey and they'd say, all right. The way Mark and the other gospel writers lay it out for us, it seems rather mysterious. It seems simply that Jesus says, go and they'll allow this. And, and somehow in the sense of the very authority of Jesus, they're able to secure this animal. I don't know about you, but if somebody came to me off the street and says, hey, let me take your car. I might wonder about that. But here, you see, they come and simply say, let me take your cold. Now, this was a special one that had never been ridden before. That is to say, in the eyes of people, it was still unbroken. It was still sacred. It hadn't yet been used for its appointed use. Now it's going to be used for a use that only would really happen, the very Son of Man, the very Son of God, upon which would ride. Now, this intentionality of Jesus, we can see uh, just in his life. The, the, uh, the, the gospel writer Luke puts it like this, that a particular day happened in the life of Jesus, he says, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, some translations have added this, that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, uh, meaning, as you can imagine, 
that if you looked at Jesus, he would be stone-faced. That is to say that he had one intention on his mind, and that is he knew he needed to get to Jerusalem. And so this happens in Luke chapter 9, the end of it, and so it takes a little while for him to get there, but, but nothing would deter him. There, there came a time, there came a moment in the life of Jesus. He says, I need to get to Jerusalem. That's my appointed place. And so he would go. The way it rolls out in Mark is that Mark, on various occasions, tells his disciples that he needs to go to Jerusalem, and he puts it like this on three different occasions. I'll just read one of them from Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so you see, he says, you know, we need to go. We need to get to Jerusalem. We need to get to this place because I must suffer and die and I must rise again. We see an odd juxtaposition of qualities of Jesus on this particular day. We see on the one hand his great majesty. We see on the other hand his great humility. We see, we see his majesty as people are, are, are hailing him as, as, as Lord, as the very one who is Hosanna. That word Hosanna is just a transliteration. It's a transliteration from both the Hebrew and the Greek. It simply means save us. And so you see, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, what they're doing is they're calling him to save them. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what their intention was, whether they were intending that he would save them from their sin, more likely that it would be a political salvation, that he would save them from the occupation or the rule of the Romans of them. But whatever it is, they see Jesus, in fact, as their king, and so they, they hail him as such. And it's, it's surprising to us, surprising especially if we read through the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus allows this to happen. You may remember on various occasions, and this is quite true in the Gospel of Mark, on various occasions when Jesus does miracles, he says, now don't tell anybody. Be quiet about this one. Because my time has not yet come. In fact, there are demons who recognize Jesus. It's always amazing to me that the demons always knew who Jesus was. <laughs> His disciples weren't always sure. But the demons always knew. And he would exercise or he would cast out a demon from someone and he would tell that demon, now be quiet. Don't give away my identity. Not yet. And so what's amazing about this march into Jerusalem is that, is that Jesus allows all of this praise to happen, you see. And what's surprising is that Jesus rides. Jesus always walked. Even on water. He took a boat occasionally, but it was, you know, not always convenient. He always walked, but now he rides, and he rides on this colt, and he receives, you see, their praise. He allows them to put their coats down on the, on the animal, allows them to put them on the ground. He allows the palm branches and all of that, and they praise him, Hosanna, and they give away his identity, that you're the very Lord of glory, that, that you're, the, you're the son of David, that you're the one who is the king of the very kingdom of God. All the promises made to David are, are coming now true in you, Jesus. He said, God did, that he would always have one upon his throne, uh, and, and you're the very one. You come from the very house of David. You're the king, and so all of that is being pronounced here. In Jesus, but, but even though we see this great majesty, there's tremendous humility here. He rides in on a donkey. He doesn't ride in on a horse. 
You know, kings would come in triumph, ride in on horses, and, and all of their soldiers are around him. Jesus rides in on a donkey with women and children and men just sort of shouting around him. Nobody has any weapons, and, and he had said that this was going to be a violent time in his life, and yet, yet here he comes, coming into this place, riding on a donkey. There's no quick getaways on a donkey. There's no great honor on a donkey. But you see, when a king would come in peace, when he wanted to communicate to uh, I'm not going to raise a sword here. Came in on a donkey, not on a horse. And so Jesus comes in humility in the midst of all of this crowd shouting hosannas to him. In fact, this was in response to this prophetic word from Zechariah. When Zechariah the prophet speaks of this Messiah coming, he speaks of him like this. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humbled, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And so here Jesus comes. Bells and whistles should be going off in their head. The Messiah is really coming. He's really here. But notice verse 11 in Mark chapter 11. Dramatic moment. So all of this takes place. Feel the noise. Listen to the noise. Feel the crowd and all of that, all the excitement, everything around. And then it seems as if everything gets quiet for a moment. The, the crowds disperse. Jesus is there with his 12. We don't know exactly where they are in, 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 in position relative to him. But, but there he is. And verse 11 says, <clears throat> And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Huge place, this temple. Probably went into the outside court, which would be the court of the Gentiles. Very large space. Acres. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I read that and I go, I wonder what he saw. I wonder what he thought. I, I wish Mark would have just given me more information at that point, but, but Mark doesn't do that. If you know Mark's gospel, it's very understated. And so just simply, we, we come here and he looks at everything. And, and I think at that point, we're supposed to pause with Jesus. And think about that temple, that night, and what was to come. What did he see, Jesus? You see, this temple was really a permanent dwelling place, if you will, permanent housing of the presence of God among his people. It replaced the tabernacle, which was a movable tent. That was called the tent of meeting. That was called the place where God would meet with his people. You see, God has always intended to live among his people and for his people to live among him. In fact, the Garden of Eden was to be a sanctuary for God and his people. He made it so he could dwell right there with his people. Adam and Eve were there in the garden. The scripture says that, 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 that God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. They were to be there, you see, together, the very presence of God with his people. And we know what happened. We know that Adam, Eve, rebelled against God, thus cast out of the garden. And you remember, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, there was placed at the entrance to the garden 
two cherubim, two angels, two cherubim, and a flaming sword to guard the garden, which is to say, in order to come back in, you must first go under the sword, you must first go under the judgment of God. And so then the question is, well, how can any live in the presence of God? And so God called his people together, and he says, here, I'll give you this tabernacle, then this temple, this to be my very presence among you. And in this temple you'll find a way to me, to be reconciled to me. There'll be a priest who is holy. He'll represent you before me. He'll go before me on your behalf. He'll he'll bathe, he'll cleanse. He's he's just like you, but but I'll accept him on your behalf. And and, and sacrifices will be made. Another will go under the sword rather than you. Another will go under the sword. Another will receive my judgment. It'll be an animal, a lamb. Passover, this is the Passover time as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Or goat on the day of atonement another will be sacrificed for you will go under the knife go under that sword for you so that you can live in my presence i in your presence we can live here if you will together and so that temple was the very meeting place of god with his people in fact when solomon built that temple first He dedicated it like this, 1 Kings in chapter 8, verse 27. Temple's built and Solomon comes before God. He begins to pray and he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. In other words, Solomon gets it. He says, God, you're bigger than this place, I know. You dwell everywhere, really, but you've told us that you're going to dwell among us here in, in this temple area, this place. So, all right, I know you're bigger than this, but, but this is the place uh, that we fix upon you, and we know that you dwell, verse 28. He said, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the, to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Here's God's answer to Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 3. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And so we see right here that God says, all right, I'll answer your prayer. I'm going to live among you. And uh, and, 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 and this is my answer. I've consecrated, made this place special I'll put my name there. My eyes and my heart will be there all the time. And I'll hear you when you pray. God's name upon the temple, where God's presence is, that's where his name is. His name, in fact, will be upon his people. I grew up in a small town in western Pennsylvania. A very ethnic community. We had people from various... Uh, countries there, most of, of 
my parents' generation, we were first generation, um, born, so we had all kinds of people there, all kinds of accents and so forth and so on. It's an amazing thing. But in these little towns, I don't know about you, but in these little towns, the way that we got our mail was in a slot in the front door. The doors had little slots in them, which had little, I don't know what they were made of, some kind of metal deals. You open them up and the mailman, hmm, mail person, 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 uh, would slip uh, your mail in the little slot. Now what was interesting was that most of the time people would etch in some way their names on the mail slot. And so when you went to somebody's house, if you didn't know who they were, you probably did because you just knew everybody. But if you didn't know who they were, all you had to do was look on the mail slot on their front door and you knew who lived there. And so when I remember as a kid when I read this passage, when I heard this passage read, that God's name would be upon his temple, I thought that must be where God gets his mail. And he does. In his very dwelling place, on which he has his name, and he names that place where his people are, and he hears them when they pray that their sins are to be forgiven, that their needs are to be met, you see, that he comes to give them wisdom in times of confusion. And he says, not only my people, but even the foreigners among my people, I will hear and I will listen. That's why there was this huge court of the Gentiles. The first court as you walked into this temple area, it was the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place that foreigners, not Israelites, could go. But they could come there and, and meeting with the people of Israel, God said, I will hear your prayers. My house is to be a house, the prophet Isaiah said, of prayer for all the nations, all people. I will hear as they come to my place this place that has my name. And then he goes on to say, he says, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. In other words, in this place where I dwell, where my name is, where my people dwell with me, I'll see. And I'll see all that you need because I care for you. There's a sense in which God is saying, I'll see in the same way that a mom who's at a park with her kids sees her kids. You know, when a mom takes her kids to the park, I wish this were more true of dads, but I know it's true of moms. When moms take their kids to the park, they see all the kids. But if their kid falls, they see it and act. When their kid laughs, they hear it and are happy. When their kid strays, they see it. Even though they're seeing all the kids, there's something special about their kids. And so while their eyes are on everybody, their eyes are really on their own kids. And they know what's going on in their kids' lives. And there's a sense in which God says, in my presence, my people realize I see because I care for you. I know everything that happens in your life. And I'm there. I, I count the hairs on your head. I know exactly every time you fall. I know when you laugh. I know when you cry. I know when you stray. I know all of that. And you belong to me. Thus, I care for you. Understand in this place, my presence, my people, I see you. I see the enemies around you. I come to meet needs. I come to protect. Because you belong to me. He says, my heart will be there, meaning my affections will be there. My affections will be towards you. I love you. I care for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to come to me. Don't be afraid of what's around you. Don't be afraid.
name will be there. My heart, my eyes will be upon you. But he says, listen, if, if this is going to be the relationship that we have, that I have a place in which you can come and I'll hear you, a place where I dwell in your midst and you dwell in mine, now realize that you just simply can't take me for granted. You can't marginalize me. You, you can't put me off a little corner. You can't hold me like a rabbit's foot and only come in when, when you have a particular need and say, oh, God, dance for me. God, do this. God, give me that. And, and, and not be wholehearted towards me. He says to Solomon right here, verse 4, and he says, as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart, meaning wholeheartedly, undivided, genuinely, authentically, sincerely. In other words, that we're in covenant together and I'm your God and you are mine and you know that and you honor me as God. Then he says, all right, I'll hear you. And I'll act on your behalf. Now you know from their history, you know from our history, their own history, that we don't always live like that. That even though we might have the presence of God among us and live in his presence, you know that we can take God for granted, we can marginalize him, we can use him as a rabbit's foot, we can think of superstitiously him using him and not be wholehearted towards him. That's certainly what happened in ancient Israel. You remember the prophet Jeremiah comes and he speaks to the people concerning their, their relationship with God and, and he writes this, verse chapter 7 of Jeremiah. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, that is to say to Jeremiah, stand in the temple and proclaim this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do, um, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. In other words, the people got to thinking, well, God's here. He's just right there. He's in the temple. We're fine. It doesn't matter what we believe. It doesn't matter how we live. We're, we're fine because God is here. If anybody comes against us, God will take care of that. If we have any particular reason, God will take care of that. It doesn't really matter. We don't need to really honor him as God. We're safe because the temple's here. Verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your forefathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. For you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you may have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and said, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares, declares the Lord. And so you remember, perhaps, in the history of ancient Israel that that temple was destroyed, the very presence of God uh, leaving the people because they were not faithful to him. 
But then the temple was rebuilt. The prophet Malachi speaks then of this new temple, and it seems that the same thing was going on. The presence of God among his people, yet the same deception, the same unfaithfulness. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? God responds like this, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not? In other words, God is saying, you're just simply dishonoring me. You're simply marginalizing me. You have me over in a corner. You think that, that, that I'm nothing really. God says, that isn't how it's to be if I live among you, if my name is in your very place. If I see you, I hear you, my affection is toward you. And you must live with me in integrity and honor me as God. Chapter 2, verse 17 in Malachi. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in, which you delight, in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure this day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver and they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. In other words, God's saying, listen, I'm going to send a messenger. Who is that? Jesus said it was John. John the Baptist. And, and he said, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And who's that? And who do we find on this Palm Sunday? And where is he? And what's he doing? This one has come. It's been announced by John. And here is Jesus now at his temple. And he looks at everything, this temple. And he says, this was to be the very place where my father dwelt among his people, where his name was, where he would see them, where he would hear them, where his affections would be towards them. And they took him for granted, and they put him in a corner. And now he sees, Jesus does, that very place that was to be a place of prayer for all nations is now a den of thieves. The next day, Jesus would go, and, 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 and we'd see what he had seen, I suspect, the night before. The first scene, of course, is that classic case with the fig tree. Jesus finds himself hungry, sees a fig tree with leaves, and he goes to it. It has no uh, fruit on it, and so, so he curses it. Now, Jesus has taken a huge rap for that over the centuries. But Mark is quite accurate when he said, it's not about the tree. It wasn't the season for figs. So don't worry about that. Jesus is making a point. Is if we understand the Old Testament context and the present context of that parable, we understand it exactly. The Old Testament context is that ancient Israel had often been uh, 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 aligned with, spoken of as, as a fig tree. 
And this fig tree was to be faithful. And if this fig tree was faithful, then it would have fruit. And if it was unfaithful, it wouldn't have fruit. Jesus comes across a fig tree with no fruit. It doesn't depend really what time of year it is. His point is that there's just no fruit on this tree. And anyone with any understanding of the Old Testament context would say, oh yes, Jesus, I get what you're saying. This group, this, this, this Israel is to be fruitful because they're faithful and yet there is no fruit on this tree. And so Jesus, having seen the night before, the heart of the people in the presence of God, curses the tree. Yes, he's acting like an Old Testament prophet at that point. We would call this an enactment prophecy. Many times what the prophets would do would speak the message. What Jesus is doing is speaking the message. He's cursing a tree that looks like it's good. It has leaves on it. It looks healthy. But he knows there's not going to be any fruit on that tree. And then he walks into the temple. And what he sees in the court of the Gentiles is that there's no room for anyone to pray. Because you see, it's so busy. They've, they, they've, they, they're now, you see, selling all these things necessary for the sacrifice. There were different stations set up around and outside of the temple area for people to be able to, to purchase doves, for instance, for sacrifice or, or unblemished lambs for sacrifice. I mean, if you were coming from a long distance to Jerusalem for a Passover feast and, and, and you needed an unblemished lamb to sacrifice, that would be quite a precarious thing to get your lamb all the way from your house, all the way to the temple, without it becoming blemished. I mean, all the way you're trying to take care of your little lamb, saying, don't get blemished because I need to take you up to Jerusalem to kill you. Now, if you're, any, you know, if you're a smart lamb, you're going to get blemished at that point, right? And so, so they would sell them. People would raise unblemished lambs. And that was fine. You could, you could purchase them. Uh, but now you see all of that moved into the temple, and, and now it, it became the focus of attention. It wasn't so much the meaning of the sacrificed lamb that was important. What meant something was making money from those lambs. And Jesus could see that in the hearts of the people. In fact, there was so much going on, there was so much busyness going on there that no one could pray and, and his house that was to be a house of prayer for all nations, he says, now, you, you've missed it. The nations can't come here. And there isn't any prayer. There's no room. There's no quiet. There's no place. And so, Lord, he did. He cleansed it, as we say. He purified it. He cast them all out. It was seemed like a violent action, a destructive action, but it wasn't. It was a reconstructive action. And the sense of Jesus, again, enacting this prophecy was saying, this is what I'm about to do. What I'm about to do in this place is cleanse it. What I'm about to do is to make the temple of God a place of prayer, a place of meeting, a place where God dwells among all the nations. Next day, Peter sees this tree, or later that day, Peter sees this tree that Jesus had cursed and has withered. And Peter said, wow, look at that. I don't think Jesus was terribly surprised. But Peter was, it seemed. He said, look at that. The, the tree that you've cursed is now completely withered. In other words, it will never bear fruit, just, just, like, you, just like you said. Now notice Jesus' answer in verse 22 of Mark 11. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Jesus is saying, this is my point. The very dwelling place of God is to be the very place where God hears the prayers of his people. Never forget how powerful those prayers are. Jesus isn't after teaching his disciples a new party trick on how to cast mountains into the sea. He's speaking in exaggerated languages, using a figurative speech to say, look at what God can do. In fact, what's harder to do? Cast mountains into the sea or forgive a person their sins. God can do that. Come to him. Come to him. Pray to him. Seek him with all of your heart. Seek him with all of your soul. Seek him with all of your might. Because God is like that, you see. Of course, it's drips with all kinds of illusions. I I trust going through your head if you know anything about what's to come in the life of Jesus and what he does during the course of this week as he comes really to on the one hand destroy this temple and on the other hand open it up for everyone. You you might remember early on in the ministry of Jesus according to the apostle John, John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple as well. Similar kind of circumstance, similar kind of, of passage. But at that point... Jesus said something quite helpful to us. Now, John says they didn't know what he was talking about then, but but John fills us in. That Jesus said, you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. John parenthetically says, this was he was speaking about his body. You know, the people around Jesus were thinking, you're crazy, this took generations to build. How can we, anybody, rebuild it in three days? And Jesus said, listen, this temple's about me. This temple really is the very meeting place of God with his people. And that's where it comes. It comes in me. I'm the priest. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the very presence of God. I'm the one who's going to go under the sword uh, for the sake of my people so that they can come into the very presence of God and live in his sanctuary and pray to him and be received by him, you see. And, And so here's Jesus saying, now you remember, we mentioned, this a couple of Sundays ago. I'm sure, of course, it's very well known. That when Jesus was crucified, the veil, the curtain, that separated everyone other than the high priest once a year from the most holy place was split in two. From top to bottom. Not bottom to top, but top to bottom as if God did it, you see. And what did that mean? It meant everyone now, through the death of Jesus, can enter into the very presence of God. Because he took the sword, he was killed for us. Jesus looks at this temple and you get a sense that he can fast forward through the whole week and he knows what's going to take place. And he says, I'm going to take this from this den of robbers that it is, and I'm going to make it into the house of prayer for all nations that is the very dwelling place of God that his name will be upon his people. And that he will see them 
and that his heart's affections will be towards them. I'm going to make all of that happen. And you see, we live now in that day. Understand that as a believer in Jesus, that God's name is upon you. Because do we, do we realize that as believers in Jesus, that we now become the very dwelling place of God. Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter in chapter 2. Verse 4, as you come to him that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we live as the people of God with the consciousness of his name upon us. It was a benediction given by the priests over Israel. And we find it in Numbers in chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So uh, he's saying, this is the blessing. This is the benediction. This is the good word. This is what people should, should, should hear from you. This is, this is what you're to speak upon them, that God will see them. That is, his face will shine upon them. And, and when the scripture says God's face will shine upon you as opposed to God's back will be towards you, it means that it will be favorable. It means it will be gracious to you. And so when God sees you, as you see in this sense, in this blessing sense, it means that his affections are towards you, his heart is toward you, that he will help you, that he will hear you. And he says the Lord will lift up his face upon you and the end result will be peace. Verse 27. God says this, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. As believers in Christ, we're the very dwelling place of God. His name is upon us. We know that we belong to him. And that because of Jesus, he will hear our prayers. That he sees everything in our lives. And that he so cares for us that he's orchestrating every event of history for our good. That good being 
that we would know him and that we would, we would be conformed to the image of his son, restored that all that was taken by sin would be restored in us as the very image of God. We know that when we sin because of Jesus, we can cry to him and our sins will be forgiven. We know that when we're afraid, we can cry to him and he will come to us and he will give us courage. We know that when we're feeling insecure and we wondered about our place in this world, that we can call out to him and we can listen to him and he will help us and he will show us that our place in this world is to be his and to belong to him. And we know that when the enemies of our soul comes to destroy our very faith, that we can cry out to him and he will come and he will strengthen us and he will help us. Because you see, his name is upon us. We belong to him. There was Jesus. He's looking over that temple. He saw it as a den of thieves. I trust that's not true for us. He, he saw it as a place where prayer couldn't happen. I trust that's not true for us. He, he saw it as a place where, where though it looked like there should be life, there wasn't. I trust that's not true for us. I trust that as he looks over his temple, he sees his people. And I trust that in seeing his people, he sees his people wholehearted to him, crying out to him in sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, As Solomon prayed, I pray that you would be with us as you've been from one generation to the other. That as you've promised, you will not leave us, nor will you forsake us. And Father, that you would incline our hearts to Christ, that you would cause us to be wholly true to him. That we would walk in his ways, that we would keep all his commandments, his statutes, his precepts. God, that you would hear our prayers. Maintain the purpose for which you've saved us. And that we would trust in you, that we would follow you, that we would glorify you with our lives. So that the people of all the earth may know that you're God and that there is no other besides you. Father, enable us as your dwelling place to be faithful to you. And in our faithfulness, Father, we pray then that because of Jesus, you would hear us when we pray. That we'd be forgiven, that we'd be strengthened, that we'd be given courage, that we'd be given purpose, that we'd be given direction. That we would follow after you and persevere. That is our prayer. And this we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.